All right. Good morning, familia. My name is Hannibal Rodriguez, and I wanted to welcome you again, those of you that are always worshiping here with us in person. You guys look beautiful, smell amazing. We are so glad that you're here. Those of you worshiping with us online, we also want to welcome you. We are so glad that you're part of WBC and you chose to worship with us today. Today is week three of our Advent series, and we have been looking at one passage that talks about Advent, a very famous passage, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And what I have been doing throughout this series is uh, giving you statements about Christianity or about Christmas um, that talks about the importance of Christmas. So for example, first week I said that Christmas is both, the, uh, two weeks ago, I said that Christmas is both the most offensive and the most wonderful message ever proclaimed. Last week, I said that Christmas is about the wonderful counselor of truth and tears. And today, the statement for us to consider is Christmas is about the mighty God who came to redeem and redefine the concept of power. So, to talk about this topic, we're going to be reading, once again, from Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 and 2, and then verse 4, and then verses 6 and 7. I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. And if you stay, if you, if you still stay, uh, if you're still here, can you please say, I'm here. I'm here. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, then verse 4, and then verses 6 and 7. This is the Word of the Lord. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of deep, deep darkness, a light has dawned. For as in the day of Midian's defeat... You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. We're going to read uh, verse 6 together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let me pray really quick. Lord, we pray that you speak to us this morning. We pray, Lord, that we may get, we, we may get to see the beauty of our mighty God, the God of justice and the God of righteousness, the God that came to set us free the guy that became a child to bring his kingdom. I pray for the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we may be able to understand, that we may be able to see, that our affections may be transformed so our will may be affected. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says, you may take a seat. So the first question we're asking this morning is, why would I say that Christmas is about this mighty God? Now, I have to remember, and I have to start by giving you the context of the text. If you have been with us before, uh, you know that when, when Isaiah is writing this, he's writing to a group of people that are experiencing, in verses 1 and 2, gloom and distress, walking in the, in, 
working and living in darkness. The word gloom can be translated also as discouraged or disillusioned. The word distress can be translated as someone that experiences anxiety and fear. And walking in darkness or living in darkness is a description of wounded, hurt, spiritually blind people. This is a description of someone living without God. Someone that is emotionally broken and spiritually broken. But the beauty of this passage, though, is that it shows us and it paints the picture of this God that is not indifferent to our pain. That he promises that one day he will send a redeemer. So the prophet Isaiah writes this down about 700 years before Christ. And he promises that when this child would come, there will be no more gloom, no more distress. And actually, the people walking in darkness will see the great light. God is promising that suffering does not have the last word, that fear does not have eternal power, that emotional and spiritual brokenness at the end of the day will be destroyed through this Redeemer, this child, Jesus Christ, the one that was born, the one that was given to us, But I want you to see in verse 6 that it says that he comes to establish a different kingdom. That's why the word government is there. And he will become a ruler. That's why the word shoulders there is so important. And this kingdom that is being led by this ruler, Jesus Christ, also is called a mighty God. Can you say mighty God? He paints this picture of Jesus that comes into this world, breaks into, the, into, into this world, breaks into our darkness. Pay attention, church. Not to take us to a different place and let this place burn. But he comes to bring his kingdom. To establish a new kingdom. In which he rules as mighty God, as a king and as a ruler. And we're going to talk about the implications about that later on. But suffice uh, to say for now that the way we're going to deal, that the way we deal by gloom, uh, that the way we deal with gloom or fear or distress or, or darkness is when we submit more and more to the kingship of Jesus. I would like to argue that part of the reason why we struggle with gloom and fear and distress and darkness is because we don't submit to Jesus as king, and sometimes we don't live in light of this new kingdom that already he brought with him. So then this begs the question, why is it that Jesus is called a mighty God? Now, if you were here last week, I explained um, that some scholars believe that the reason why Jesus have all these compound names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, is because God wanted us to have this image, this picture of God in Jesus that is completely God and completely man. A Jesus that is 100% God and 100% man. And if that's what it is then, the name Mighty God tells us that Jesus is powerful But not like human powerful, but God powerful. That when when we talk about Jesus as powerful God, we cannot compare him to human power, but divine power. 
Now, this is super interesting when you, when you study the text. Is that the word mighty could fall under the category of an adjective. But in the Old Testament, the word mighty can be translated as an adjective or as a noun. Now, I want you to pay attention here, because if you were like me in third grade, that we did not pay attention to, this, to the teacher, we probably forgot that the, word, that the word of an adjective, the job of the, the adjective is to modify or to describe the noun. Right, class? You know what the problem, though, is with... The problem, though, with this, though, if we see the word mighty as an adjective is that adjectives can change over time. Now, this is the time when you say, you are right, Mr. Rodriguez. <laughs> that is the problem with the adjective, right? It changes under different circumstances. So, for example, if you say, that man, this is class, all right? This is third grade. If you say, this man is, that man is skinny, that could change over time. So, for example, a man like me, that I'm already in my 20s, if I want to lose two pounds, pay attention. If the description is that man skinny, Hannibal skinny, if I want to lose two pounds, I have to work, for, work out for six months in a row, and I cannot taste nor smell fast food because I will gain 30 pounds in two seconds. Therefore, this skinny man, if we use it as an adjective, can, can change in my life, when I walk by a fast food place. <laughs> Smell it, gain weight. <laughs> That's a problem with the adjective, right? Now, I have a friend that doesn't like it when people call him, you know, fat or overweight. So he's chosen a different word. He calls himself blessed. <laughs> you are like 200 pounds over blessed. If that's what the mighty is, then, if we transfer that to Jesus, then we're saying that Jesus' power changes with circumstances. Therefore, it couldn't be, class. Therefore, we couldn't say that the word mighty applied to Jesus is an adjective. Therefore, we have to say that when the Bible talks about Jesus being mighty, it has to be a noun. And it is, in fact, a noun. It tells us that the power of Jesus cannot change and cannot be modified. It tells us that Jesus is powerful by nature. That is part of his character and nature to be powerful. And it tells us then that when Jesus comes into our rescue, and when he sees our emotional condition and spiritual condition, and when he sees the reality of our hearts, not only he wants to do something for us, but he has the divine power to do something for us. It's not just that he wishes that he could help you. It's that he's got the divine, innate, natural power to do something about your struggles. He tells you that when God is described in Jesus as Emmanuel... It's not talking about this wimpy God that is following, following you around, trying to see if he could help you. It is this description of this mighty, powerful God that has the ability to do whatever he wants to do. 
mighty God. A mighty God that has the ability to save you from sin, in sin, I'm sorry, save you from suffering, in suffering, and through suffering. Let me say that again. So if you like tweet, if you like Twitter, you could tweet this one. God as Jesus, as mighty God, has the ability to save you from suffering, in suffering, and through suffering. His power is not reduced to saving you from suffering alone. His power is magnified because he can save you from, in, and through suffering. Did you get that? Even if God does not take your problems away, he has the power to sustain you in problems and through problems. In my own personal experience, I you struggle with embracing God, I you struggle with fear and anxiety and worry and distress when I forget those two things, who Jesus is and what Jesus does. I you struggle trying to control things that I cannot control when I forget who Jesus is and what Jesus does. See, I think that if I, if I were to do like a little survey here this morning, and I would ask you how many of you guys would love that God saved you from suffering, everyone would raise their hand. All right, let's just try. How many of you guys would love that the Lord saved you from suffering? Nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, if you don't want to be saved, then there's, all, there's an issue with you. But we have to understand that the power of God is displayed not just when he saved you from suffering. The power of God in Jesus Christ is displayed when he saved you in and through suffering. Now, there's another important note that we've got to pay attention to when it comes to the name mighty God. Because the word mighty can also be translated as hero or warrior. So here we have a God that is a hero and a warrior. And that's important to pay attention because it tells you that Jesus uses his power the way a hero will use his power, the way a warrior would use his power, not to save himself, but for the sake of another person. A hero that is not exercising his power for the sake of another person is not a hero. But here we have this picture of this mighty God, Jesus Christ, that uses his power for the sake of another person, other people. This is how radically different is the power of God to human power. This is how radically different it is Jesus to anybody else with power. See, most people, I don't think that this is a secret, but most people in the history of the world, most people with power in the history of the world, and most people with uh, power in the history of the church, have used that power for crazy things. But not our Jesus. Actually, there, there, there are people here in this room right now 
that even when we talk about the power of Jesus, you struggle internally a little bit because you have been a, a victim of abusive power somehow and you transfer that to Jesus. But I want to remind you and I want to invite you to consider that the power of Jesus is never displayed in evil ways. It's always for the sake of the victim and the afflicted. Listen up, church. Even his power is displayed for the, for the sake of the abuser. This is part of the reason why when you read the Old Testament, you will find a, lot of te- a ton of verses in which the power of God and the awesomeness of beauty of God come together. Our God is not fragmented. Our God is powerful and wonderful and beautiful at the same time. Deuteronomy chapter 10, for the Lord our God is your, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. Powerful and beautiful. Nehemiah chapter 9, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant love. Three different descriptions for the same God. Mighty, awesome, and a God of love. Our God is not fragmented. Everything that God does is in power, is beautiful, and is in love. When you read the New Testament, though, there's an extra thing added to God. Not only he is mighty, he's awesome, he's a God of love, but he's gentle and humble. See, our Jesus, our mighty God, is nothing the way we are. Historically, humanity has used power to elevate themselves, to serve themselves, but not our God. Jesus has used his power to love, to save, to rescue, to do other things for the sake of other people. I don't get to define Jesus the way I want to. I define Jesus the way the Bible tells me that I'm supposed to define him. So just in case there's someone here that has been a victim of abusive power, I'm so sorry. But that's not a picture of our God. That's not a picture of my mighty God. He has never, will never use his power to hurt you. He will never use that to hurt you permanently. This then takes me to my second point. Why would I say that Christmas is about this mighty God who comes to redeem and redefine the concept of power? Um, There is a counselor, biblical counselor, I I think she is. Uh, Her name is Diane uh, Landberg, um, counselor for about 45 years. She's written a ton of books. But one of, uh, of her areas of expertise is actually this concept of power. He recently wrote a book called Redeeming Power. And she makes this argument, and I, and I agree with her. And I want you to consider it to see if this is true, all right? She, she argues that every single one of us are created with power as it is. Because we are all created in the image of God. So you have power, I have power. Everyone has some sort of power. And if we were created in the image of God, then we shouldn't try to pretend that that's not a reality, but instead we have to embrace it. Actually, she gives these examples. And she says that even when you see the dynamic between a baby and a parent, you can see that both parties have power. Right? 
a baby uses her, or let's say her because I got two daughters, right? She uses her voice as a means of power. So she uses her crying either to get what she needs or to get what she wants. That's power. Parents have a different set of power. They have the power to provide and help for the girls. So they, like in my case, the girls. That's power display. And her argument is that the Lord gives human beings power so we bless and help flourish and to serve others, not to dominate others. That's the whole argument of her book. And I happen to agree with her. So the question is, how is it that we as Christians, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, how is it that we as Christians use this power the right way? Her big argument is this. When we realize that whatever power we have, it's a delegated power. That it doesn't come from you, but that was given by God, from God to you. That our power is supposed to be a reflection of his power. That the way we use our power is supposed to reflect the way God uses his power. And that in everything we do, we submit to the power or the authority that is beyond us, God in Jesus Christ. And then that explains why is it that Jesus needed to come. It tells you that the reason why Jesus had to come was because we were victims of one another for the misuse of our power. The misuse of the power of the devil. The misuse of power in this creation. Therefore, we have all, all have been victims somehow of oppressors. Now, I want to show you how in Jesus, we find at least in this text, three examples of how he uses his power. You ready? Because whatever happens there, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that's for you as well. Not only you have been a recipient of this, but you are called to imitate this. So the first one is this. Jesus uses his power to defend and protect. That comes from verse 4. Verse 4 says, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Now, those two, uh, three phrases, or words, yoke, bar, and rod, are expressions of someone that has been suffering both physically, or not both, all three, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And it tells you that part of the reason why Jesus comes is to set us free, relief, to rescue us from physical, emotional, and spiritual slavery. It tells you that you and I have been victims and that we have been oppressors and that Jesus comes to defend and protect the ones that have been affected because of all of that. How do I know that that's what the text is saying? I'm glad you ask. Because that's the same language that we find in the Exodus story. Isaiah is using purposely the same language that is used in the story of the Exodus. If you guys remember, the Israelites are living in slavery, and God, by his power, delivers and protects his people. He defends and protects his people. And if you read the New Testament, we are also living in an exile. 
And we are also being rescued by Jesus. And it also tells you that part of the reason why Jesus came is to set us free. This is the reason one of the scholars calls Jesus a freedom fighter. Jesus came to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Let me say that again. Jesus came to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And I know that that statement for our modern sensitive ears uh, is kind of offensive. Because nobody wants to hear that I cannot defend myself. Nobody wants to hear that we cannot protect ourselves. But I want to argue that if you want to embrace Jesus the way he is, that's where you start. You start by recognizing that you don't have the power to defend yourself or to protect yourself. That you need someone outside of you more powerful than you to do that for you. If that is true, and I believe the Bible says it's true, then there are at least two implications for that point alone. Number one, are you ready? Can you say ready? You don't have to pretend that you're strong. Like really, you, you don't have to pretend that you have it all together. Let, let me give you a description of my heart. And then let's see if I'm the only one in this room that struggles with that. I come through those doors and I automatically put this front in front of all of you. You know, I fix my hair shave my face, kind of wear this. And from there to here, you say, man, Hannibal has it all together. How about if I tell you that this is all up front? I'm doing okay today, but last week I wasn't. How about if I tell you that if, if I want to be honest with you and I want the church to be honest, is you and I, we need to stop pretending that, that we are okay. We have to stop pretending that we can protect each other or protect ourselves. You don't have to pretend anything. You don't have to defend yourself and you don't have to protect yourself. You have a mighty God that does that, that is going to do that for you. Actually, this week I was reading the pressure that celebrities have to keep that front in front of their followers. You know how much, how much pressure that is? Every time they go out, every time they have a video, every time they do something publicly, they have to put this front to cover their insecurities and their weakness, weaknesses, and they're vulnerable. You know what the problem is with that church? That that gets old. That gets old super fast. And then everything starts to break down. Marriage breaks down, relationships break down, church breaks down, work breaks down. You don't need to be your own savior. You don't need to pretend. The second implication is that if that is true, that Jesus is the one that defends and protects, listen up, church, because I'm about to get super personal here, even if you get upset. Our ultimate security is Jesus, not a human agency, not an institution, not a political party, not a person with power. Jesus is our ultimate security. 
This week I was reading this crazy study that showed the modern people don't mind getting married with a person of a different religion. Pay attention, church. But they will not marry a person that belongs to a different political party. <laughs> don't you think that there's something wrong there? Oh, it's okay. We don't worship the same God, but we have to worship the same political party. Are politics important? Of course they are. Do we have to participate? Of course we do. But our political parties are God? Not according to the Bible. They don't have the power to defend you or protect you. Only God can do that. Let me move faster because I'm going longer here. Second way that Jesus uses his power is to create and sustain. Verse 7. Oh, wait. 7. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it. And he tells you that Jesus comes not only to bring a new kingdom, but that that kingdom is progressively advancing. And that as the, as the kingdom is progressively advancing... He is, not, he, is not the only, he is not only the source of this new kingdom, but that he's sustaining this kingdom. Let me give you a quick application of that. If that is true, God is still in control. It doesn't matter how many things are going wrong. What Jesus came to establish, he's still sustaining, and he's going to take it home at one point. That's the first implication. So when people say, well, these are the worst times in the world, first of all, no. you got to read church history. And second of all, the text tells us that Jesus is still sustaining his kingdom. I said this before, but I'm really not worried about this church. You know why? Because Jesus, this church belongs to Jesus. If I start preaching crazy stuff, okay, then we have an issue. But as long as we continue to preach the Bible, we have no reason why to worry about the church. The second implication comes from that text, and it says that the kingdom of God continues to grow and will increase more and more. No end to the kingdom of God. You know what that means? That everything that is beautiful and perfect here is nothing compared to what is yet to come that will grow more and more. More and more. Everything that is beautiful here will, be not, uh, will, not be, uh, we will not be able to compare it to what is yet to come. So just picture for a second, just for a second, an, an, an important event in your life. That brought so much joy into your heart. Just really quick. I have three. When I became a Christian, when I married my wife, and when I had my daughters. There's more when I met you, of course. <laughs> but let's talk about the first three. See, I remember clearly, let's talk about as a father, because I think that it's easier to relate for those who are, that are, those who are parents. 
I remember clearly seeing my, seeing, uh, seeing my daughters and, find and, and experiencing this, this crazy, indescribable joy. Man, I cannot believe that I make such a beautiful kid. <laughs> of course, that changed super fast because they started crying and they were doing natural things that I found disgusting. <laughs> but that joy was there. Now, take that and think about what the Lord is going to bring and he tells you that this joy is going to be magnified more and more and more and more and more. That the experience that we have with God, that we experience in, in a beautiful way, is going to be experienced more and more and more and more. That you're going to get to know God more and more and more. That everything that is beautiful, everything that is perfect, everything that we're going to experience inside is going to be more and more for eternity. You know what the implication is? Why settle for less? Why live if this is all there is? Why trying to make this kingdom our kingdom? And number three, God, you, Jesus uses his power to redeem and to restore. Verse 7 says that his kingdom, he's establishing and upholding his kingdom with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in the concept of justice and righteousness because we're going to have to talk about that when we talk about peace. But for now, let me just give you this. The word justice comes from the word to judge. And he paints the picture of the kingdom of God and how God is making all things new. And he's creating a society and a kingdom in which all injustices are dealt with. So to our brothers from where we live, there will be one day in which you won't have a job. And that's a good thing. Right? And when he talks about righteousness, he's talking about this kingdom in which all relationships are Right? Relationship with God is right, and relationship with one another is right. A kingdom in which there's honesty and lo loyalty and innocence and prosperity. You know, it's, it's a kingdom in which all that is physically broken, emotionally broken, and spiritually broken will one day cease to be. And he says that this kingdom that Jesus already brought, that continues to grow, it's a kingdom in which everything is redeemed and everything is restored. If you put the two concepts together, Jesus comes as a mighty God and uses his power to recreate a world in which everything that is broken is fixed. Everything that hurts disappears. Everything that brings destruction ceases to exist. Everything completely redeemed, everything completely restored. This is part of the reason why we celebrate Christmas. It's the beginning of that kingdom. One last thing, though. This is the irony of all of this. That Jesus surrendered his power so he could be broken, so he could take the cross, so he could be hurt, so he could be abandoned, so you and I don't have to. Actually, let me frame it in a different way. God uses in Jesus his power 
to absorb everything you and I deserved. Let me read this that I wrote this morning and I finish. This is the story of, this is the Christmas story. The story of a mighty God that used his power to become a tiny human being. The mighty God that makes himself nothing. The mighty God that becomes vulnerable. The mighty God that we find nailed on a cross. The powerful willingly abandoning his power. The defender before a human court finds no one to defend him. The divine protector is utterly abandoned. The one that sustains finds no support. The redeemer is treated like a criminal. The one that brings restoration is completely broken. The question is why? So he takes what we deserve. And so that you know that he loves you. I don't know where you are in your relationship with Jesus. But this I tell you. No one has the power to defend you and protect you and redeem you and restore and restore you like Jesus does. If you're a believer, you embrace that again and you leave it out out there. Use your use your power right. And if you're not a believer, how about if you surrender to this beautiful and amazing Jesus, mighty God, Emmanuel, God with us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the freedom of not having to pretend that we have it all together. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that we may have, that we may get this beautiful image in our mind and in our hearts of who Jesus is and why he's so important. I pray, Lord, that we may be able to get, that we may be able to see and taste and embrace that Jesus is a mighty God that used his power for our sake. Now help us do the same for the sake of others. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say...